Amen. If you get your Bibles out, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, you'll find that on page 1129 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Matthew 14. The passage we'll look at today is, is uh, one familiar to most of you in the room. It's uh, found also in John chapter 6 and Mark chapter 6. And we'll refer to all three uh, gospel writers' account of what we'll look at this morning. But we'll primarily stay with Matthew. So if you just go to Matthew 14, you'll be able to follow along with us. Now, I want you to think before we get started this morning about uh, the nature of the God whom we've come here this morning to serve, the one we've come to worship. Let's think for a moment about uh, the the scripture. And if we if we want to know God, if we want to know about God, then the best place to turn would be his word. Let's let's look at what he said and and what he's left for us to know about him. And so we open up the Bible, we begin to read the Bible. And what we find is this grand narrative in scripture of redemption. The story of how God is going to redeem mankind and exactly how He uh, walks us through the entire process from beginning uh, to where we currently are, this process of redemption. Now, I think we all have that. We got that. We understand that, at least most of us, for the most part. But let's think about what else goes along with redemption. In other words, it's shocking when you uh, stop and really realize the way in which God redeemed us, the cost that He paid, the fact that He sent His own Son from heaven to earth to be slaughtered for our sin that we might be forgiven. That's an astonishing thing, isn't it? Just to think about that, that God would send His Son for us. But then beyond that, that it doesn't end there. That there are things that go along with redemption that we find in the Scripture that are inseparable. In other words, there are certain things that go along with every life that's ever been redeemed. And one of them we're going to talk about this morning, and that is transformation. That God doesn't just redeem us. He's not satisfied to only redeem us and to leave us the same. He continually pursues us and works in our life and changes us. Now, that is, again, an astonishing thing to think about. That as if God hadn't done enough, He doesn't quit there. And it is a process that theologically we call sanctification, but it's a process of continual transformation that every day of our lives as a redeemed child of God, God is at work transforming us. He's working in the the rough edges of our lives. He's working to mold and to shape and to and so we're we're in this ever growing process of of just change into the image of the Lord Jesus. Now there's no there's no escaping that. There's no way around that. But there is A way to resist it. There is a place in every human heart that resists what God has for us. And it is 
an astonishing thing that we all universally have it. We all universally do it. That even when we know the place that we're in is not really the place we ought to be, we push back against God. We know that God wants us to do certain things, but we just don't want to do it. In other words, how many of us in here this morning, right now, do you think no? That there is something that God is calling you to do right now and has been calling you. But you haven't moved. That there's an area of your life that God is is pushing you to transformation, to change. But you haven't do it. There's undoubtedly some of you in this room that have been resistant for Years. For years. And yet in our minds, we'll say, we, I, I trust God. You're here. I trust God. I know God's good. I know that the Bible is true. I know what it says, but we don't move. We stay. We say with our mouths that... That he knows what he's doing and that he's always good and that he's sovereign and in control. And, but we don't move. And so what does God do? He keeps working. He keeps working in our circumstances. He keeps working in our surroundings. He keeps working. And he's, he just keeps turning the heat up on our lives. And... We respond to that heat in different ways. Sometimes we lash out at Him and we say, God, why are you doing this to me? When in our hearts we know. I mean, we are a strange bunch, aren't we? I mean, to be human is to just be so awkward that we... We lie to ourselves. That is that's a that is a mystery. That the 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 sin nature in us would be such that we lie to ourselves. I lie to myself all the time, and so do you. And we know we're lying when we do it. And we feel comfort in our lie. Because we want it to be true, but we know it's not. But we feel good that we said it to ourselves. And we don't say it to anyone else because they know it's not true. We're weird. Matthew chapter 14 gives us an opportunity to look at a place in our life that maybe maybe we're somewhere this morning that we wish we weren't. Not physically. I mean, not here in this place. I mean, there's things going on in your life that you wish were different. 
There's struggles that you've been facing and things that you know you just need to act on spiritually, but you haven't acted on them. And you want them to change, but you just can't seem to get there. And we look in Scripture, we look at this story of redemption, we look at how God works to to transform us. We, 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 We see that God's inviting ordinary people like you and me to have a relationship with Him through faith. But that faith is the catalyst that begins this process of transformation. And when you get to the New Testament, what you find is, is really every single page is, is about faith. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And, and God, especially in the Gospels, is working in the lives of men and women to build up their faith, to increase their faith. Faith is the, the catalyst of transformation. And Jesus is always about dealing with our faith. And when we're in a place where we know we're not supposed to be, when He's dealing with us about change in our lives and we're resistant to that, we're reluctant to that, what's at the root of all of it is is faith. It's a faith issue. And we say, well, maybe I just don't have enough faith. Well, maybe not, but you're never going to have enough faith because it's faith. The nature of it is is that it's scary. The nature of faith by definition is, is not walking by sight. And so therefore it's a little bit unpredictable. It makes you uneasy. That's the nature of it. And God's drawing us, always drawing us to a place of, of walking by faith. And the more you walk by faith, the more you grow accustomed to walking by faith. The less you, you know people, if, if you've had the opportunity to have people in your lives who have great faith, what you notice about them is that they're, they're very consistent. They're, they don't get rattled. They don't, that's what comes with a life of faith. You just expect the unexpected. You, you're not thrown off by the nuances and the ebbs and flows of life. But we get tangled up. This is what we do. We get tangled up in the everyday grind of life. And so we know there's this thing out there that God's calling us to do. We know there's a relationship we need to deal with. We know there's a a gift that we need to serve in. There's something that that God's pushing you to do. See, because here's what's true is that every person here this morning who's saved is not idle. If you think you're idle, then either you're wrong or you're lost. Because if you're saved, you cannot be idle. God is always pushing this transformation, this sanctification. But what we do is we get really tangled up in what consumes our daily lives. And we just put it out of our mind. But we know it's there. We don't talk about it. We don't. We we tell ourselves, oh, we'll we'll get to it some other time. And we just. And what God's saying to you and me this morning, He's saying, do something. Do something. Don't do nothing. 
do something. He's saying, I know that you don't know exactly what to do. I know that you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. I know that you don't understand where this is going to lead to. That's why it's faith. But do something. And I'll meet you there in that something. And transformation will take place in your life. God's saying, I understand your tendency to sit idly and to just hold and to just think, you know, maybe if I just wait long enough, it will go away. Maybe God will just give up on this area of my life and, and leave me alone about this. Maybe if I overcompensate in other areas, then this area will get easier. Or maybe for some of us in this room, instead of doing something, our first thought is just to sit stagnant in thoughts of what's been done to us. And so we don't move because of what's been done to us. We don't do something because we're sitting there waiting, thinking that, in order for change to come, then whoever's hurt us, whoever's wounded us, needs to come and right that wrong. And that's going to fix the problem in my life. As if somehow your personal sanctification is dependent on another human being. See, again, mentally, we know that that can't be true. That doesn't make any sense. But it practically plays out in our lives. And so before we can jump into a passage of Scripture that we've all heard so many times, we really have to realize just how, how common these struggles are and how, how impractical the things are that we tell ourselves. When we sit stuck, when we don't move, when we don't do what God's calling us to do, Inevitably, it's going to lead to resentment. You're going to either become resentful towards other people's lives because you see God moving in their life and you don't see God moving in your life. And the only way for God to move in your life is for you to do what God's calling you to do, but you don't want to do that and you've got all these reasons why. And so you get resentful for other people, but sometimes you get resentful eventually for your own life and you start resenting your own life. You're resenting the situation and the circumstance you're in and you're, you're the one refusing to move. All the while, God is at work. He's never taken a day off. He's working in the, in the external relationships of your life. He's working in your job situation. He's working in uh, the nuances of various things. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to, and, and, and it's real simple. If you want to know, well, what is God trying to do? He's trying to build your faith. That's what He's trying to do. He's trying to strengthen your faith. And He's going to do whatever He needs to do to get there. Now, let's pray and ask God to bless us as we look at His Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we recognize that this is a perfect, inerrant gift that You've given to us. Lord, this Scripture is meant for us personally, and we want to receive it this morning as the great gift that it is. So, 
Lord, will you help us? Will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? God, and hearts that will receive the goodness of the gift of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, maybe, maybe you've said things like, you know, if my spouse would ever support me, then I would do what I need to do. Or, or if, if, if my life would ever, if this area of my life would ever just get less complicated, or if, if, if my, when my kids get a little bit older, or if my job situation settled down, or if this or if that. And so, you know, there's, there's all these reasons why. And I just want you to know that no matter how you got where you are this morning, no matter how long you've been where you are this morning, uh, no matter whose fault it is that you are where you are this morning, I think the encouragement that God's going to give us from His Word is just to do something. Just do something. And I don't know exactly what that something is. But you just do something and watch God work. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Now, the context of this passage of Scripture, which is where Jesus walks on water, is that what's just preceded this is the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus is, uh, uh, is at a very, uh, it's early in his, in his ministry and he's been doing lots of miraculous signs and wonders. And so his fame and his renown is at a fever pitch and uh, he's being just mobbed by people everywhere he goes. And of course, he's just fed 5,000 people with a, a sack lunch. And so... Uh, everyone is very uh, excited about that and intrigued by that. And they, they are all tangled up with the, the, the things that they can receive from following Jesus, the way in which it benefits them by Jesus being there, that, hey, he's the free meal wagon is, is roaming around Galilee, so we want to be uh, next to him so we can eat. And so we transition into now this next segment in the, in the training manual of these 12 men. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Now immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go therefore uh, and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, there he was alone, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves and the wave, the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, Is it a ghost? And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there's 
three things I want us to focus on this morning out of this passage of Scripture. And it seemed like the longer that I studied this this week, the more uh, things that kept coming out of it. And finally, I just realized, okay, we just have to focus on three things. There's just so much here. It just... It's just that it just never ends, the giving of God's word. But what I want you to look at first is I want us to, to be honest about the storm. Be honest about the storm. In other words, identify the storm that you're facing. I want you to recognize that the storm that the disciples in were in in this boat is similar in many ways to the storm that you and I find ourselves in in life. And the first thing we need to know is that we need to identify what the storm is. Because, again, we have a tendency to tell ourselves that it's other things. We have a tendency to, to get into this pattern of denial within our own head. We need to be honest and identify what is the storm. What are the winds that are contrary to me? What is it that is buffeting up against me that I can't seem to move forward? we got to be honest with ourselves in the secrecy, maybe at first, of your own mind. Just you with yourself. What is this storm? Identify exactly what it is. What is the one thing that you know this morning that God's dealing with you about that you've been resistant to address in your life? What is it that you are escaping in your busyness? Identify the storm. I know that it's scary. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but pastor, you don't understand. I know what you're thinking. And I know that you've built this up in your mind and you're thinking, if I knew what your storm was, I wouldn't be saying what I'm saying now. You're, you're wrong. Because I've said the same thing. I, I know that, 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 that it's scary. I know that you don't feel ready. I know you're not sure what to do. That's the nature of the storm. But you have to identify and be honest with yourself and take ownership of exactly what the storm is. In other words, it's one thing to say storms happen, because they do, and we know that. But you've got to identify it. You've got to realize that when it rains, everybody gets wet. Nobody stands out in the rain and starts trying to blame or find out whose fault it is that it's raining. Isn't it interesting that when we're standing in the rain... We do something. We run to cover. We get out an umbrella, right? But when a storm comes into our life, we we start looking around like, well, what's causing this? Whose fault is this? What's the reason behind this? We don't take action because we're trying to we're trying to figure out the source of it. Well, Peter knew exactly what his storm was. He knew the situation he was in, but he didn't really know how to solve it. He didn't have a solution to it. He didn't, he didn't know exactly what was the next thing that was going to happen. But he did something. He did something. In other words, have you ever noticed that one of the ways we put off doing something is in the storm is by, by just uh, fighting smaller storms, different storms. We just trade in one storm for another storm. We just find new storms, even if we have to manufacture more. We fight other people's storms and we think, well, God, I'm so busy fighting other people's storms. I don't have time to deal with this storm of my own. They're, they're diversion storms, if you will. 
We say things like, well, if I could ever, if I could ever get to smooth sailing, if, 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 if the winds would ever stop being contrary against me, then I would deal with this thing that God wants me to deal with. But it never happens. You never get there. Why? Because God is using the storm in your life to draw you to Him. It, it is by design that the storm is God's workshop for transformation. Think about it. What the scripture says. For example, think about the parable of the builders in Luke chapter 6. One man builds his house on the sand. The other man builds his house on the rock. How do you know what foundation your house is built on? See, if you take the storms out of the parable of the builders, you know what you have? Confusion. You, you have a little proverb about, hey, you should build your house on rock and not on sand. But... No explanation or no way of knowing which way you, your house actually is built. But the storms reveal the foundation. You see, you see how God uses that? It's his, it's his workshop for transformation. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says it this way. That not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Transformation in the storm. I mean, how did these disciples end up in this storm? Look at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. That's how they got in the storm. Jesus put them in the boat and sent them into the storm. Jesus wasn't up on the mountain praying and then thought, uh-oh, there's lightning. Maybe a storm's coming. Oh, I shouldn't have sent them out there in the storm. Now, let's understand something. Sometimes God puts us in the storm. Sometimes we put ourselves in the storm. But regardless of which of those two ways we ended up in the storm, being in the storm doesn't negate the reality that God is sovereign over the storm and that His purposes are not thwarted by whichever means you ended up there. It's still the same God with the same power and the same purposes in our lives when we're in the storm, regardless of how we got there. So there's the disciples out there struggling in the storm. Remember, I want you to be honest about the storm. And I also recognize that some of you aren't yet fully convinced. You don't understand exactly what I'm saying. So think about what's going on in this passage. There they are. They're out there in the boat. And they're struggling. When they go out into the boat, it's evening time. When Jesus comes walking out, it's 3 a.m., They've been out there a long time. They've been pushing against this wind for a long time. Why? Because Jesus wants them to be fully aware. He wants them to identify the storm they're in. In other words, what would have happened if they would have paddled out into the middle of the sea and the storm would have came up and then immediately Jesus would have came walking up? They wouldn't have been convinced of what their need was. They might have thought, well, here comes Jesus. What we need is some more strength. Jesus, if you'd strengthen us, we could paddle out against this storm. 
They might have thought, Jesus, if you'd come on over here and give us a lesson on, you know, teamwork and paddling, maybe we could make some headway. You see, if he would have walked right out immediately, there would have been confusion about what the storm is that they're in. But by leaving them out there until three in the morning, they knew that there was no way in them that they could move forward in the storm. You understand? They had identified their problem. Their problem is they're in a boat with some paddles and there's no way they can move forward in their current situation. You and I have to identify our storm in the same way. We need to say, what is it that I'm facing? And so by the time Jesus shows up, they're there. They understand. They know. They know what their problem is. But so oftentimes in our storm, we... We say things like, well, my marriage is fine. My, my children aren't, they're not on a collision course with disaster. We'll, we'll get through this. Oh, my, my life's not ruled by money and possessions. No, I, I don't have a problem there. My, my habit, it's not an addiction. It's a habit. I can quit at any time. You see, that's the sign of Someone who doesn't know the storm that they're up against. It's when somebody says, you know what, I, I can't, I got to do something. I got to take a step towards God in my marriage. Because we, it, without that, it's not moving. If I don't take a step towards God with regards to my children, there's going to be big problems and heartache ahead. That if I don't take a step towards God with these habits that are creeping into my life, they're going to they're gonna destroy me because the truth be known, I am addicted. You see the difference in those two things? No one takes a step when it's just a marginal storm. When you haven't identified the reality of the storm that you're in. When it's just some peripheral thing as if somehow, you know, we can just quantify and qualify the struggles in our life or the sin in our life or whatever the case may be and just make it so it's not so bad. And I want you to notice something else about this passage. The disciples know what their storm is. They've been out there so long they can't move anywhere, yet they're not afraid until when? Look, they're not afraid in the storm. They're afraid when Jesus shows up. Isn't that interesting? It says in uh, John says it this way in John six nineteen. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. Actually the word would be better translated terrified. They're in a storm. They were, they were confident on, on the water. This was no new place to them. They, they couldn't move. They couldn't go anywhere. It was a perilous situation, but the Bible records nothing about them being afraid until Jesus shows up. But all three gospel writers say that as soon as they see Jesus coming up... Now, yes, granted, part of that has to do with the fact that how He comes up. I mean, let's be honest. 
I'm sitting in a boat. It's three o'clock in the morning and I'm stuck in a storm. And I'm aggravated with the 11 numbskulls that are with me because we can't seem to get the cadence right. Somebody's always out of, you know, sync and we're not going. Or, if you know, if I was on it, it would be like me in a canoe. We'd just be going in circles because somehow it would never seem to get right. And suddenly Jesus comes walking out on the water. Yeah, I'd be afraid. I'd be afraid. Is it a ghost? No, it's Jesus. Now I'm even more afraid. He's walking out into my storm. And I'm terrified. Because I I realize in my heart that, you know what? See, some of you right now, your heart is starting to beat a little bit faster. Your palms are getting warm. You're starting to get up. Because what's happening is Jesus is moving towards your storm. And when you came in here this morning, you weren't stressed out about it. You weren't even thinking about it. Now that I've opened this can of worms, you're getting stressed out. You're starting to get a little terrified because Jesus is getting close to your storm. And you know what that means. You know He's he's coming. And He's saying, hey, something's going to change here. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to leave you alone. It's three in the morning. It's time. It's time for you to, to make a move. So we got to, first of all, be honest about our storm. Secondly, we got to be honest about the boat. We got to be honest about the boat. See, the boat in our lives, it, it represents what we're clinging to. They're out there. They're in the boat. They're clinging to this boat. Whatever storm you're in, once you identify that storm, then you got to find the boat. Where's the boat? What are you clinging to in your life? To avoid doing something about the storm. Well, what are you trusting in while the storm rages? You see, you're you're not just standing there empty-handed and alone resisting what God is trying to get you to do. That's not how that works. We always have a boat. We always have something that's serving as our security blanket. You see, take Peter out of the equation for a moment and ask yourself this question. What are the 11 other guys doing? They're hanging on to the boat, man. They're not moving. They're sitting there. They've been treading water for hour after hour after hour. They're going nowhere. They know that. They know what the storm is. They know the situation that they're in. Jesus shows up and they just sit there. They're terrified, but they just sit there. Terrified. As if the boat that has done them no good up until this point, other than just keeping them afloat, it keeps you afloat, but that's all it does. You haven't moved an inch. There you are. You're sitting there clinging to the boat. Nothing's working. But yet their solution is let's just keep doing the same thing. Which, isn't that the definition of insanity? To just keep doing the same thing but expect a different result? we got to give Peter credit here. At least he recognizes, hey, this isn't working. If this is really Jesus, then let's ditch this boat. Because this thing's not getting us anywhere. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not sure what my boat is. 
I don't really know what, what, what represents the boat. I, I know what the storm is, but I don't really know what, what I'm clinging to. I want you to understand now, the, the boat in your life is an idol. That's what it is. And to find that boat, you simply follow the breadcrumbs of your fear. Because whatever you're afraid of is going to lead you right to the boat every time. That's the way to find the idol in your life is to just look at, well, I know I need to change, but if I change, I'm going to lose blank. I know what God wants me to do, but if I do that, I'm going to blank. Whatever that is in the blank, that's your boat. That's what you're clinging to. That's what you're hanging on to. In other words, those breadcrumbs of fear ask questions like, well, what, what job are you afraid of losing? Or what person are you afraid of disappointing? Whose approval do you feel like you have to have? What relationship do you live in constant fear of it ending? What comfort is it that you think you can't live without? All of those represent the boat that we're afraid to leave. And here's what happens. Those 11 guys are in the boat. And they're going to be rational, just like you and I are, in their own heads. And they're going to say, well, at least I'm not drowning. Right? Yeah. In other words, they're going to find comfort in treading water. Now, you and I would never do that, would we? We wouldn't find comfort in treading water. We, we, we wouldn't get to a place in our life and think, well, you know, I, I may not be going forward, but at least I'm not going backwards. Is that the goal? Is that the intention of God? In other words, how does that fit into God of wonders beyond our galaxy? How do we sing that song one moment and then the next song say, but this God of wonders, this, this glorious God of all power and authority, He's okay as long as I'm not drowning. He sent His Son so that I would just tread water in the same place. No, I think not. The boat represents an idol. And, and you see, this story teaches us some things about the boat. First of all, now look in verse 29. So Jesus says, He says, Come. And Peter had come down out of the boat and walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And then beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And he said to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And then when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Now, we fixate on that and we, we miss this very important point. The boat will never be enough to get you through the storm. 
Nothing changed until Peter stepped out and stepped towards God. Nothing changed. Clinging to the boat, contrary to what we're going to convince ourselves, it's not going to get you through the storm. Because again, that's not God's plan. God's plan is far greater than that. So if you're in the boat this morning, if you're in the storm, you've identified the storm, if you're going to be honest about the boat and you're holding on to the boat, and you just think, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit here, I'm just going to ride this puppy all the way. Here's the weather report. Increasing cloudiness, higher winds, gale warning on the horizon. The storm's not dying down. The Lord's not giving up. He's got way too much invested in you and me. So the boat is insufficient. So the third thing, we're going to be honest about the storm, we're going to be honest about the boat, and thirdly, we're going to be honest about God. Because, see, it it takes... It takes dishonesty in our mind about the storm, the boat, and especially about God in order to get us in the predicaments in which we get ourselves into, to believe the silly things that we know in our heart aren't true, to to act in ways that are so contrary to what we read in Scripture. I want you to notice about Peter. First of all, what Peter doesn't do. When Peter recognizes that it's God, He doesn't ask God to take away the storm, which is interesting because he's identified his problem. And yet that's not what Peter does. He doesn't say, God, will you make the storm go away? And what's even more interesting is Jesus and his interaction with Peter. In other words, Jesus doesn't come up and Jesus doesn't offer to take the storm away. He could, but he doesn't. Jesus doesn't show up with a a good weather report. Jesus doesn't walk up and say, hey, guess what, guys? It's not going to last much longer. There's relief on the horizon. Jesus doesn't come up with some solution. He's not, he doesn't walk up, you know, on water carrying an outboard motor and say, here you go, fellas. Crank this Evan Rude and you'll get right on out of here. That's not what he does. There's no discussion about The storm at this point. Peter knows the problem. He knows the boat's insufficient. But he sees the opportunity to walk towards God. In other words, here's the thing. He's being honest about God. Now, what just happened in Matthew chapter 14? Just prior to this, they saw Jesus feed 5,000 plus people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fishes, right? So they, they recognize His power and authority. But if you go back and read that whole uh, narrative about how that went down, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look, man, it's getting late afternoon. The sun's going to be going down soon. Look at all these people. The crowd's not getting smaller. It's getting bigger. People are getting hungry. What are they going to eat? We need to do something. Why don't we disband and go to McDonald's and get a Happy Meal and just forget this day and take a nap? And Jesus says to them, You do it. And they're like, huh? 
Do you know how many Happy Meals that is, God? How are we going to carry all those Happy Can you imagine the look on the girl's face in the drive-thru when we drive up and say, I need 9,000 Happy Meals. He says, you do it. Why? Because he's teaching them about faith. And so Peter, having just gone through that experience, he's sitting there in the boat. He sees Jesus walk up and he's like, Oh, I see what's happening here. And he gets out of the boat. He's like, this is that you do it thing, isn't it? This is that faith thing, isn't it? Can I just... And he says, tell me to come to you and I'll come. Interesting. He doesn't just bail out of the boat. He says, tell me to come. In other words, if it's your will, I'm, I'm ready to come, but I need to know what your will is. And so if you ask me to come, I'll go. Even though I don't understand, even though I don't think it's humanly possible, even though I've never seen it done, even though 10 seconds ago I thought you were a ghost, even though I'm terrified right now, even though I've been in a storm all night, even though all these things are going on, if it's your will, I'm there. What if we did that? What if we said, God, I'm in a storm, I'm holding on to this boat, I know what the storm is, I know the boat's not going to get me through it, I know that that you're calling me to do something, I'm not sure, I've never seen it done, I've never done it before, I don't know how it's going to work, there's so many questions I don't have answers, but if it's your will, just call me and I'm going. What would happen? And so he gets out. See, the issue's not the storm. That's why they don't have a conversation about the storm. It's the storm that, that got all this started. But now the issue is not the storm. Why? Because the issue is Jesus. It's always Jesus. Jesus is the issue. The storm is just to get us to recognize that Jesus is the issue. The storm you're in this morning is just to get you and me to recognize that it's about Jesus. It's just about taking a step. That's what this is all about. And so... We would all just go, wouldn't we? None of us would. None of us would say, oh, well, I know that God's calling me to to act in this way. I, I know that there's errors in my life that don't honor God. I know that there's relationships in my life that need to be addressed and dealt with. I know that there's changes that need to be made. I know that this job that I am, am in is not glorifying God in any way. In fact, it's counterproductive to my, to my family and to my witness. I know that there's things, but I don't... But if I knew Jesus was calling me to do it, I would do it. But you do know Jesus is calling you to do it. And you're not doing it. And in order to make that work in your mind, you're just like me. We got to start some major, major mental gymnastics to make that okay. We got to spin all sorts of things around. We got to come up with all sorts of reasons. We got to come up with all sorts of ways to deny that. We got to get ourselves busy in all sorts of other things. We've got to divert attention away from that. We don't want to talk about it, think about it. We try to hide that from everyone. The last thing we want to do because we, we, we never admit to ourselves, Jesus said, come on. And we said, nah, I don't think so. In order to do that, you have to create a Jesus 
that the Bible doesn't know. The easiest way to do that is to create a Jesus that always calms the storm. Because that ain't the Jesus of the Bible. That's a man-made Jesus. See, a man-made Jesus is a Jesus that we make up, that we're sitting in the boat and we're hunkered down and we're sitting there and, and somebody next to you says, Hey, what are we doing? And you say, don't you know? You just be still and know that He's God. Just, just hold on. Just stay right here and hang on. And eventually He's going to calm the storm. Meanwhile, He's walking around and around and around. And we're just sitting there in the boat, not moving. No, he, He's... A Jesus, this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is a Jesus that allows us to walk towards Him in the midst of the storm. In other words, don't, don't do the injustice to Scripture of just taking this story and making it into... Oh, Peter, he stepped out. That crazy Peter, he stepped out. Because he's just so impulsive. And then he took his eyes off Jesus and he started sinking. Don't go there. Don't reduce something so powerful to something silly because it's not. The Bible says... That when Peter, verse 29, when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He's stepping on water and he's going towards Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, when he realized as he's walking, the storm hadn't died down. That Jesus doesn't calm the storm. He calls us to walk to Him in the storm. The waves are raging. The wind is blowing and He's walking. And He got afraid. Because it's scary. And so He began to sink. But He cried out. Lord, save me. And what does the Bible say? Immediately, immediately Jesus grabbed his hand. Immediately. He didn't sink down and go under. Jesus didn't dive down and retrieve him off the bottom of the sea. Immediately. Don't spin this into something that, that, that is a, a mistake. It's never a mistake when Jesus immediately grabs you by the hand. He immediately grabs him by the hand. The storm is raging. He's walking. He gets afraid. He starts to sink, but Jesus grabs him. He's okay. You're with me. Don't worry about it. Now, now who would you rather be? Jesus has one disciple by the hand and 11 other ones clinging to a boat. Who's in the best position here? And there he is. Holding the hand of God in the middle of the storm. It's not until Jesus gets into the boat, Peter gets into the boat, then the storm dies down. 
You see, the Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus who says, Hey, I'm with you in the storm. I will help you in the storm. You can hold my hand in the storm. I'm going to enable you to do things you never thought you could ever do in a million years in the midst of the storm. If you'll just walk out towards me. If you'll just have faith enough to step out. Doing something. Doing something. Rather than nothing. You see, it's it's not about making the storms go away. It's about moving towards Jesus. It's about it's about grabbing the hand of God. It's about experiencing the unthinkable in the kingdom of God. It's about taking the impulsive, quick-tempered. Surely not the smartest disciple. Surely not the one in the beginning that people would have thought would have ended up the way he ended up. But what is all this about? It's about God transforming us. Don't invest your energy in predicting what might happen if you get out of the boat. Because if you do, you're never going to get out. It's faith. It's faith. And I'm not about to stand up here and tell you this morning that when you step out, it's not going to be scary. You're not going to be afraid because you are. Because if it's not scary, then it's not faith. If it's faith, it's scary. That every time in my life I've stepped out of the boat, it's scary. And I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what God's going to do. But I'm just being honest with the storm. I'm being honest about the boat and I'm being honest about God. And in light of those three things, I'm getting out of the boat. Because the boat's getting me nowhere. Second Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, that's what the Bible says about faith. Faith is a necessity. Faith comes and it's the catalyst of transformation. But what we do is we read this and then we twist this around and say, now wait a second. He didn't reward Peter. Peter sank. It was a fail. As if what would have been a success? Peter ran a water marathon? Is that what would have made it a success? Is our man-centered idea about this, that Peter, in order to be successful, you wouldn't have got wet or you would have never sank? Well, in that case, we're all utter failures. That's what brought us into a position of being able to understand this truth, isn't it? Oh, he didn't, he didn't reward Peter, he sank. And then he, he chastised him in verse 31. He said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? No, no, I, I don't believe for a second that the Lord is angry with Peter. He's saying, Peter. Come on, son. Why do you doubt me? Why do you doubt me? Why is your faith so small that you'd only get out and take a few steps? After everything you've seen 
of me? After what you know of me? Why, why do you doubt me? You could have walked all the way to me. Me and you could have taken a stroll. The chastisement comes in the silence towards the other eleven. If Peter had little faith, then what do the eleven have? I'm guessing no faith. If we go just two chapters forward to Matthew 16, then we'd run into Jesus talking to Peter. And he says, I say to you, Peter, that on this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. He didn't say that to anybody else. He didn't say that to the other 11. He said it to the one who sank. He said it to the one who had a little faith. He said, hey, congratulations. Again, it was again the same scenario. Just before that happens, Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? He says, all, he asks all the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then they all respond. Oh, people say you're one of the prophets. Oh, you're Elijah. You're Jeremiah. You're... And then he says, but who do you say that I am? Silence. And then who speaks up? Only one person. Only the guy who gets out of the boat. In John chapter 6, right after this boat incident, what happens? Just the, just the very next thing that happens, the crowd follows Jesus to the other side. All the people swarm again. Jesus is trying to get some, some relief from them. And Jesus says to them, no, here's the deal. You cannot be my follower unless I am like food and drink to you. I mean, he puts a teaching on them that is so harsh, nobody can stand it. Everybody starts leaving and all the disciples are standing there bewildered and they're all thinking about leaving too. And Jesus asked all the disciples, are you going to leave also? And where's the other 11? Still hanging on to the boat. They still don't get it. But who speaks up? Peter. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Why? We've come to know and to believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's Peter who gets it. It's Peter who realizes, hey, when you find yourself in a storm and all of a sudden everyone's leaving Jesus and you've left everything to follow him, don't panic. Just wait for his voice and then move towards him. Over and over, everything we ridicule Peter about, we ought to be celebrating We ought to be saying, that's how I want to be, Lord. You see, if you do something, I just, the the grace of the God that we serve says, I'm looking at these teenagers up here singing, and and I'm just looking at their faces, I'm thinking, Everything in this world just wants to destroy everything about you. There's so much pressure for you to just bow down and just give in and just sell yourself short, to be condemned by the mistakes that you've already made, to think that there'll never be a way for you, to to believe the voices that say you're never going to add up, you're never going to be enough, that it's just never going to work out for you. But if you just back up from that a second and say, now, wait a second. 
If in fact the God of the universe paid the highest possible price for me, then there must be something or he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have paid that price for me unless there was a way. Even in the midst of the worst situation in all, in the, in, in anything you can imagine, however bad the storm is, there's gotta be a way. And he knows that you don't understand how that's gonna work. He knows that you don't know. He knows that there are people in your life that have authority over you and even they don't understand. It's going to cause all sorts of problems. It's going to, it's not going to add up. I, he knows that. He knows that. Listen, don't try to figure everything out. Just do something. Don't make the mistake that so many of us have made and do nothing. Do something. And the grace of God who paid the ultimate price for you will take what you do and immediately He'll grab your hand. And once He grabs your hand, it doesn't matter, does it? Don't get to the end of your life and look back on deep, honest, sincere, God-honoring conversations that you never had. Don't get to the end of your life and and reflect on on great, bold, God-sized prayers that you never prayed. Don't don't get to the end and, and think about exhilarating risks that you never took. Don't get to the end of your life and and... Meditate on all the sacrificial gifts that you never gave. Don't get to the end of your life. And think about so many lives of so many others. That you never touched. Because you wouldn't get out of the boat. Don't sit here this morning. In the midst of your storm, resentful at people around you or resenting your own life and circumstances. God is far bigger than that. You and I have to shrink God so small to justify sitting still. That we pretty much have to just tuck the Bible away. And not read it because they just won't reconcile. God can't be as big as he says he is. If our storm. Is just too fierce. To ever change. Let's be honest about the storm this morning. Let's be honest about the boat. And let's be honest. About God. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, as we pause for a moment and just think about you. You, the God who finds out that your cousin John the Baptist has just been beheaded. And you, you, you know that. You knew that 
the first time you laid eyes on him, but it grieves your heart for what's happened. And you tuck yourself away to pray. Meanwhile, you know that the disciples are right on the boat where you put them. You know that you've sent them right out. And at the perfect time, in the perfect place, the storm comes that they might not move. And you leave them right there. And in your great love and purpose, there they sit. Marinating in their troubles. Until they're ready to be honest about what they're facing. But you don't sit on top of a mountain and look down on pitiful man. Here you come walking across the water. Every single person here this morning who knows you as Lord and Savior has experienced the water walking God. Because there was a moment in our lives when we were sitting in the storm of our sin, clinging to the boat of our pride. And you didn't just sit idly by and leave us there, but you walked out to us. And you extended your hand of grace. And you saved us. And some way, Lord, in the brokenness of our sin nature, we have twisted things around. And created you, morph you into a God who is great enough to save the world from sin, but not great enough that we can step out of a boat and walk on water. Father God, help us this morning. Help each and every one of us to be honest. And to step out. And walk towards you. Whatever that looks like. That there's no wrong way to go. Just go. And even if it's scary. And even if we begin to tremble. And even if we start to sink. Immediately you grab our hand. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That so many of us in here know what it's like. To hold your hand. We know the feel. Of your palm in ours. Of you holding us up. God thank you. Lord don't ever let us forget it. Lord we know in this moment right now. This room is filled with storms. All different kinds. One God serves as a solution to all of it. Not to calm the storm, but to call us to step out in the midst of the storm and to walk towards you. So, Lord, will you give us the courage to respond to you in whatever way, whatever way we see, whatever way we hear your voice this morning. Call us, Lord. May you find a courageous people who will step out. Begin to walk for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. I, I ask you to come and respond to the Lord if He's calling you to make a move towards Him this morning. In the midst of your fear, in the midst of your struggles, 
Just get out of that boat and come. I'm here. Pastor Brian's here. Pastor Rod's here. We're here for you. If we can pray for you and encourage you in any way, we're here. You just come.